Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like rats, teachers, and algebra. Do you know, Sam, during homeschooling, I have been learning a lot about algebra and loving it, but I would be fascinated to hear about the history of algebra. However, that is to digress a little, as always, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of beards that everyone is growing during lockdown is in fact all about the Crimean War? Or that the history of chairs is all about power in Tudor England? Mm, they sound great. The man not sitting opposite me because we're across town from each other, not in my shed recording as usual. He nonetheless will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. You're all very lucky that he's going to be speaking to you for the next 20 minutes or so. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. You are such a flatterer because the man not sitting opposite me is you. It is the famous historical adventurer who is unable at the moment to get out and historically adventure uh, because of lockdown. It is nonetheless the wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Hello Sam. Hello everyone. This is another episode in our special series Homeschooling for everyone during the coronavirus pandemic. In each episode we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today I'm very excited about today. We're doing something which has been uh, um, close to my heart ever since. I have a very close sister. Um, which is just 12 and a bit months uh, older than me. And when I was a kid, I thought everything was unfair. We are doing the history of unfairness. It's going to be great. And we are doing it in particular relation to something called Chartism, the People's Charter. But, but before we reveal that link and explain that connection, we're going to do a quick brainstorm about how we might think about the history of unfairness. Hmm. The history of unfairness. I mean, it could be about sibling rivalry, sibling jealousy, the sense across time that children feel that one or other of them is treated differently by parents, that they're treated unfairly. Or it could be that there's unfairness, there's cheating uh, in history. Uh, I'm thinking about the those sort of medieval battles and jousts that people would have had and those tourneys where soldiers would have got off their horses and would have fought and people who would have had a dagger secreted upon their person and brought it out and stabbed somebody in the guts very unfairly. Isn't that awful? <laughs> terrible. Yeah, really terrible. Yeah, unfair, unfair. unfair, you know, the history of unfairness. Yeah. Do you know what? The more you think about unfairness in history, there are so, so many examples of it. Take, for example, the westward expansion in North America. So mm. in 1783, the American colonists win their independence from Britain. At the time, there were just 13 colonies. They were all on the eastern seaboard of, eastern seaboard of North America. And then in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase doubles the size of the country. By 1840, there are seven million Americans. They're all migrating westward. And the result of this is that between, this is an amazing fact, 1776 and 1887, 1.5 billion acres were seized by the United States from North America's indigenous population. 1.5 billion. That's Goodness not very me. fair. That's not very fair. It's not very fair. And harking back to our episode on Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto, you could see history and societies in the past as innately unfair, with certain classes dominating 
over others. And you could then have a look at a series of complaints by people like revolutionaries, whether it's the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, whether it's the miners' strike during the 1980s, which was a period of my childhood led famously by Arthur Scargill, a man who was apparently a three-shredded-wheat-a-day man. Uh, those of you who were live at the time and knew the television <laughs> advert, apparently he ate two for breakfast and wore one on his head. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I love that. I love that. Um, and other, other movements like the suffragettes, so votes for women, um, all sorts of political campaigns as well. That's an interesting way of getting into the history of unfairness. Um, Empire, I mean, I've talked a little about... Um, North America there, but empire is, is such an amazing topic for the study of unfairness. If you think that by 1900, uh, Queen Victoria ruled over 13 million square miles of territory, and that territory was not, um, that was not got hold of in a very fair way, and the way in which that territory was administered and ruled was um, pretty unfair as well. So there's a, there's a huge amount of of history of unfairness there. Particularly interesting one I've looked at recently, James, is um, what happened in Australia. So the British colonised Australia in 1788. In the first six years, right, only six were peaceful. But then from 1794 onwards and for the next 140 years, historians have managed to identify that 270 massacres took place of Aboriginal people, and they were state-sanctioned, organised attempts to eradicate the Aboriginal people. Not fair, James. No, I mean the whole. If you look at history, history is a is a sort of series of societies and eras where most things seem to have been unfair. Uh, it's at a time like this where um, I was looking back at that that I sort of think it's actually quite all right uh, living today, irrespective of the. Uh, global pandemic uh, that we're experiencing at the moment. But the past does seem a pretty unfair country, doesn't it, really? It does. And also, you know, fairness is a is a theme which which continues today in, in the news as well. Um, and it's really important being able to see that through a lens. Anyway, we today are going to be talking about it in relation to something called chartism. And Chartism takes its name from the People's Charter of 1838. Now, these they were known as Chartists, these people. What they were doing, they were fighting against political corruption. They were fighting for democracy in a society which had radically changed. Remember, 1838, so we're in the grips of the Industrial Revolution. There are a lot of people losing jobs because they're being taken over by machines. There's a lot of industrialization. people moving from the towns, moving into the cities. Life is hugely changing in front of the very eyes of these people who are living in this period. Lots of them were born in one world, one society that worked in a very traditional way, and they were finding themselves now living in one that was changing. There was a lot of fear, and they really wanted help. They, they wanted representation in government. They wanted help from the government. And all they could see was that the rich people were getting richer, the poor people were remaining poor, and they wanted someone to help stand up for them. And they wanted to be able to exercise their own power. So in 1837, six members of parliament and six working men, um, including a chap called William Lovett as part of this committee. He's uh, If there's a key person in... Um, the history of Chartism, the Chartist. It's William Lovett. He's um, a London-based, but he's one of the key radicals, a political radical of his generation. 
um, leading the Chartists and he is standing up, he's wanting change. Now, these guys, they form a committee, six members of parliament, six working men, and they publish something called the People's Charter, which has six main aims. So it's quite easy to remember. Six working men, six members of parliament, and they come up with six aims. What they want to do is to give working men more of a say in lawmaking. They wanted them to be able to vote. They wanted the vote to be protected and so on. And what I'm going to do now is just read out um, their six demands. Firstly, they wanted a vote for every man who was 21 years of age, of sound mind and not undergoing punishment for a crime. Number two, they wanted a secret ballot to protect the elector in the exercise of his vote. That's a really important one because voting up to now was not secret and that meant people could be bullied and bribed. Number three, no property qualification for members of parliament in order to allow the constituencies to return the man of their choice. That means that you didn't have to own land to be a member of parliament. That was a crucial change. Number four, payment of members enabling tradesmen, working men or other persons of modest means to leave or interrupt their livelihood to attend to the interests of the nation. Payment of members there, that's the key thing. They wanted members of parliament to be paid so you didn't have to just be rich enough to be able to look after yourself. Number five, equal constituencies to secure the same amount of representation for the same number of electors instead of allowing less populist constituencies to have as much or more weight than larger ones. So they wanted fairness in the way that constituencies, the political constituencies were set up and run. And number six, annual parliamentary elections. Annual, that's an interesting one. They wanted one every single year, thus presenting the most effectual check to bribery and intimidation since no purse could buy a constituency under a system of universal manhood suffrage in each 12-month period. That's what they said and that's what they wanted. Note that one thing that is not mentioned here is votes for women. Um, this is 1838. Let's put it back in context. Um, bear in mind that votes for women were discussed, but it was decided at this stage that it was a step too far. So that is what's known as the People's Charter. Six fundamental points that would change their world. Now, James is going to give us a bit of background as to why this had to happen now. Yes, absolutely. Because in order to understand the Chartists, what they were after and their charter, we need to think a little bit about the background of what Parliament was like before this. And we need to also consider the Reform Act of 1832 and its weaknesses, because the Reform Act changed what was basically an unfair and uneven voting system, where the vote was very strictly restricted. Um, but what it didn't do was go far enough for ordinary people. Now, I want to explain a little bit about the vote before 1832. Now, in the 18th century, very few adults had the right to vote and conditions were also very patchy and uneven. Now, the basis of elections is similar to today. You have a member of parliament who sits in parliament and is voted for. The main difference being was that very few people were able to vote. Most of those who were, were property owners. 
workers had almost nothing to say about choosing MPs in their area. Uh, Parliament was entirely run by landowners. Now, on average, there were just 700 people who were allowed to vote for MPs for each constituency, which is extraordinary compared to the situation today. This was just a, an average, and there were certain areas that weren't deemed to have a big enough population in order to vote in an MP. Manchester, for example, in 1750, wasn't deemed big enough to have its own MP, but by 1830, it had over 182,000 inhabitants, and still they weren't allowed a Member of Parliament to represent them at the House of Commons. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, there were certain areas, certain towns that had shrunk in size and were overrepresented, sometimes by two MPs. Now, these were known at the time as what is now called by historians rotten boroughs. Take, for example, Old Sarum in Wiltshire, uh, which was basically a tiny little sort of hamlet um, there. And on election day, what they did was they put up a tent on a windy hilltop and seven people met to vote for two MPs, uh, which is absolutely extraordinary. At, at a place called Gatton in Surrey, there was literally just one voter for the MP. So the system was entirely corrupt. Um, in other boroughs, um, the problem was slightly different because most of the voters worked for the local landowner or they rented land from the local landowner and they voted for the person that they were told by their landowner to vote for. And it's estimated that several hundred MPs were elected in this way during the time. And there's all sorts of evidence about people being bullied and bribed. And it's thought that in Liverpool in 1830, the price of a vote was £150. So it was very, very corrupt. And we can see this in a number of sources. Um, take, for example, this from Sir Francis Phillips, who wrote about how he became the MP for Appleby in 1802. And he writes, I was elected by the one elector. There was no other candidate, no opposition, no poll demanded. So I had nothing to do but to thank the elector for choosing me, <laughs> which is quite an extraordinary thing. <laughs> um, there, and then there's a, an account of from 1826 and events that took place in the East Retford election uh, where Lord Fitzwilliam's representative wrote about this and I quote some men have been nearly killed by a hired mob of the scum of the neighbourhood no doubt hired by our own opponents it is expected 20,000 persons will be spectators at the election they not only threatened to block up the road to prevent the candidates coming into the hall, but murder free men that vote for Roman Catholics. The free men have every reason to expect their lives will be in danger if they go to vote. They cannot now walk in the streets, even in daytime, without insult. So we have there, on the one hand, with the Philip Francis quote, 
we have the evidence that there was only one person uh, voting. And in the Fitzwilliam quote, we have the idea that people were basically intimidated by angry mobs who were hired to stop them going to vote, which is a very, very unfair system. Now, moving on, we need to also think how people responded to this, because it was a very sort of contested topic in Britain in the 1800s, at the beginning of the 19th century, about who should rule. And there was a strong feeling, particularly among the working classes, that they should be able to choose their own leaders. And if you see, if you think about the election rules for the election in 1830, you can see how unfair this was. No man under the age of 21 can vote, and no women at all. Only men who owned property worth four shillings a year could vote. So again, it's about land owners. Voting was not secret. So in other words, you had to stand up and announce who you were voting for compared to the sort of very secret ballot that we have nowadays. Each man standing for election is called a candidate and the candidate with the most votes becomes an MP. But as Sam said earlier, they were not paid for the job, which means that you're unlikely to be independent. You're un unlikely to govern on behalf of those people who are voting you in. And as an MP, you'll probably belong to one of two main political parties, the Whigs and the Tories. The Tories um, didn't want any changes at all, whereas the Whigs felt in Britain in general that there needed to be some change in the voting system. Now, we can see the problems depicted in a brilliant painting by the wonderful 18th century painter William Hogarth. And it's a, a painting called The Polling, uh, which he painted in 1755. And in it, you can see two thugs dragging a man to the election, a man who's ill so that he can vote. There's a rich man being brought in on their carriages to vote. And one of the voters, who's depicted underneath the blue flag in the middle, being told exactly how he should vote. So it gives you a sense of this corruption. Now, what happens then is all of this pressure leads to something called the Great Reform Act of 1832. And this enfranchised more people. In other words, it allowed more people to be able to vote. And it increased voter numbers from 450,000 to 800,000. And it meant that some big towns like Manchester and Birmingham were given MPs for the first time. And there was also the removal of certain of the rotten boroughs, you know, these places that had shrunk in size and where there were a, a, an extraordinary number of MPs in relation to the number of people there. Now, it's called the Great Reform Act, this Great Reform Act of 1832, but for many, it wasn't great at all. And it's fair to say that still only one in five men were able to vote. So it's a minority of the male population. And of course, as Sam was saying earlier on, no women. And you still had to own property in order to vote. And there still were certain rotten boroughs. So take, for example, this quote about an account of an election in Wolverhampton in 1835. 
Everybody was told that if they voted against Colonel Anson, they would be in trouble. If they voted for him, they were greeted with loud cheers. If they voted for Sir Goodrick, they were hissed, booed and spat on. One voter had a load of horse dung thrown all over him and dead birds were thrown at another. So very, very unfair. So in other words, the Great Reform Act in many ways had changed nothing. Which brings us on to the Chartists and their six-point people's charter. Well, what happened? What they did is they decided to demonstrate in a very peaceful way one of the things that distinguishes Chartism from other forms of demonstration and complaint is that it was all done very peacefully and they did it through rallies and through petitions. Um, so 1839, they managed to get a petition. It's three miles long um, and there are over a million names, but it is ignored by Parliament. They then try again and this one's got three million names on it and that one's ignored. And then they start to get a bit cross and there are different approaches. People are at least arguing that there may be some space for violence in the Chartist movement, but those are not the voices which are heard loud, loudest. And in 1848, they have one last try with a third petition. Now, 1848 is very important because of the year. It led to this, this movement of the Chartists, them not going away, being ignored by Parliament, and huge numbers of people signing documents, signing petitions, and starting to meet with rallies and meetings all over the country. And everyone is frightened about this in government because of a huge number of revolutions. I, I say a huge number, and there literally were a huge number of revolutions which happened in Europe at the time. 1848 was a year of revolutions. There were revolutions in the Italian states, in France, in German states, Denmark, Schleswig, Habsburg, Hungary, Galicia, Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, in Romania, Belgium, Ireland and Spain. There are some notable uh, absences here, one of which is Russia. But historians now think that there was no revolution in Russia simply because of the revolutionary group's inability to communicate properly with each other. So there are, there are major revolutions happening all over Europe, most importantly in France, because France is Britain's closest neighbour. And the, um, uh, the monarchy which has been replaced after... Um, after Napoleon has lost power. That lasts for a bit, but in 1848 it goes and it's replaced by what's called the Second Republic. And so the British government and the people are terrified there's going to be a revolution, a great deal of concern. So they have another petition here. Six million people sign this petition um, supporting the Chartists' six points. A huge rally is organised on Kennington Common. Half a million people are expected to turn up. But then it rains, it pours with rain, and only 20,000 people actually turn up. And another problem happens, and that is that the petition is inspected by Parliament. And it's noted that there are a lot of fake signatures Queen Victoria herself is supposed to have signed it 10 times, as well as some comedy names like April 1st or Cheeks the Marine, No Cheese. I like the No Cheese one. It makes me think of pizzas. But Pugnose, the Duke of Wellington, he signed it nine times, Mr Punch. And so it rather came to a bit of a damp squib. The, the huge meeting, the rally was not what it was supposed to be. They find evidence of corruption in, in the petition. 
And so yet again, it is ignored by Parliament. However, what it has done, and this is the most important thing, is it's the first organised national protest movement. So if you're thinking about things like the suffragettes, people campaigning for votes for women, that all happens afterwards, you need something to build on. And Chartist is the first one. So remember, the first organised national protest movement. And it did lead to a huge number of changes. If you go back to those six points I talked about right at the beginning, all of them apart from the last one, the last one being the, being the re requirement for an election every year. All of the other points later become law. So every man of 21 years of age is allowed to vote. Uh, voting is done in secret. Anyone should be allowed to be an MP. MPs should be paid and voting districts should be equal. So although Parliament didn't specifically react to the Chartist demands. All of those demands were, in, in the long run, deemed to be reasonable and they all became law. So there you go, the Chartists and how they, they, well, they changed the history of unfairness, didn't they? I think we might have a bit of a quiz to see if you've all been listening. Are you ready for this, everyone? Excellent. Shall I go first? Uh, OK, you go first, James. So first up, what was a rotten borough? Number two, how many points were there in the People's Charter? Number three, in what year was the Great Reform Act enacted by Parliament? Number four, name three things that the Chartists wanted. Number five, what were the main failings of the Great Reform Act? And number six... What was the key problem that was identified in the Great Petition of 1848? What was wrong with it? Well, there we go. And we're going to give you a little takeaway task as well. I think I'd like you guys to all come up with your own charter. Think about what you do spending your time at school and write down six points that you think would improve your school. And send it to your teacher. I think that's a good idea. Send it to your head teacher in particular. Say, Sam Willis told me to get you to send it. <laughs> <laughs> You're encouraging rebellion, Sam. It's brilliant. <laughs> Quite right. I hope you enjoy that, guys. Um, thank you very much indeed for listening. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com and come and find us all in so on social media. We'd love to meet every single one of you. Thanks so much for listening. We've got more coming your way soon. Cheerio then, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.